dust and breath me all in it less we are human we are holy we're part of a bigger story we welcome to this good word where every week we look at one single word in an endless discovery of reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. My name is Steve Weens. I'm a pastor, I'm a writer, and I'm a father of three crazy boys. My hope with this podcast is to create an environment where you can continually discover who you actually are in the world. So feel free to check out my website at steveweens.com, S-T-E-V-E-W-I-E-N-S.com, where you can find links to my blog, to purchase my book, which is called Beginnings, The First Seven Days of the Rest of Your Life, and also links to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Enjoy the podcast, everybody. Hey peeps, episode 33, today's word is sobriety. I'm with Seth Haynes, author of Coming Clean. And do you ever have one of those conversations with someone that some of the things that they say just echo in your mind for days? That's what it's like with my conversation with Seth. I just loved it and I can't put it down. If you are struggling or if you know someone who struggles with an addiction of any kind, you're gonna love this conversation. Seth is wise, he's deep, he's compassionate, and there are there's just so many gems in this conversation about sobriety and addiction. So get into it. Enjoy Seth Haynes. Uh, I'm here with Seth Haynes. Seth, how you doing, my friend? Good. How are you? Man, I'm so excited to have you on. I've been kind of dreaming about this for a few weeks now. Uh, Seth wrote a book called Coming Clean, and it's really... Uh, a 90-day journal, his, his first 90 days of sobriety. Uh, it's raw, it's beautifully written, and I think it's so hopeful. A lot of people that I've talked to about it read it and are just singing its praises. So, Seth, love the book, man. Really, yeah. Really love the book. It's been fun. And you wrote this a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, so 2013. 2013 was when I stopped drinking, and that's when... Uh, when I started the journal process. Got it. And then it came out this fall, this last fall. Mm-hmm. So it's been out for five or six months. Yes. Uh, yeah. Since uh, October. Got it. Got yeah. It. Well, what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through some of my favorite quotes. And really, I mean, my Kindle is really highlighted a lot with this book. And so I had to really pick. Um, and I love this because I think the topic of addiction, though it's been talked about quite a bit um, I still feel like within the broad Christian circles, it's not talked about well. Mm. And that's one of the things I loved about your book is that I think it really talks about it in a really honest way, in a really hopeful way, but not in any kind of a way that is sort of cliche ridden. You know, God is going to just take this away from you if you pray hard enough. Um, mm-hmm. there's just none of that in there. So I really appreciate that. So, um, Okay. The book starts with Titus, really, your son, and he was desperately ill. 
and mm. it's sort of how I see the book starting is I don't know if it actually started this way, but you're in the hospital, you don't know if he's going to survive, and mm-hmm. you have this you have this feeling that oh my gosh, what's going to happen? So talk a little bit about Titus and about what um, how you started there. Yeah, so my wife Amber and I are parents to four boys: Isaac, Jude, Ian, and our youngest is Titus. And Titus, um, you know, was born when he was born. Everything was fine. He was typical baby, um, grew normally, and at about six months uh, of age, he got very ill. He actually had a mass on his neck. And as they treated the mass on his neck, they had to treat it with this like massive dose of antibiotics. And um, so at first, he started kind of losing a little bit of weight while they were treating him with these um, antibiotics. But they kind of thought that was normal. It's kind of what you do when you're on antibiotics. And um, what, what ended up happening is like, he just never recovered. He just never started gaining weight again. So um, for a few months after the antibiotic rounds were over, um, he weighed the same. And then for a couple months, he kind of slowly started losing weight. And then um, he really started just shedding the weight and shedding the pounds and couldn't keep his food down, started throwing up all his meals. And um, yeah, the doctors got really concerned. And so they sent us to Arkansas Children's Hospital, um, which is sort of our specialty hospital uh, in, in the middle part of the state in Little Rock. So we went there and that was kind of the beginning of, uh, for me of sort of giving in to, yeah, to the drink. And you said gin was kind of your, your choice drink, but I also loved how you, you just wrote about it with such an honesty. You said in the house, you'd keep several different bottles and you'd drink from different ones so that yeah. you know, the levels would kind of appear like they weren't going down as fast. Yeah. 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 Which, I think for anyone that has ever had any kind of a drinking problem, they just go, okay, yep, there we go. Uh, <laughs> this, this, this guy is being honest. Yeah. Um, so, so you started drinking pretty heavily, and I think one of the stories um, where it comes out the most is you're in a house somewhere, I think it's Texas or somewhere, and you're with some other writers. You're, you guys are about to go present, mm-hmm. and that night, you 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 gave in. I mean, you drank a ton and and you counted and blah blah blah. You ended up outside by this tree. Talk about that night and kind of how that seemed to be a catalytic moment for you of realizing you needed to do something. Yeah. So for me, um, like you said, the process of sort of giving into alcohol um, it was very volitional. Uh, so when Titus was so sick in the hospital, the pain was so deep, it hurt so badly. God didn't seem to be coming through and saving my son. And so I just decided, I don't want to hurt this much. Uh, and the easiest way to stop yourself from hurting, right, is to anesthetize. So for me, it was alcohol. So I drank and um, and like you said, I would do these little things like uh, I always kept my friend groups separate. So my clients didn't really know how much I was drinking. My wife didn't know how much I was drinking. My church friends didn't know how much I was drinking. I was drinking with all of them on the exact same day, right. but they just didn't know because my groups were separate. I would keep different bottles around, like you said. Um, and so over the course of about a year, I really gave into this this kind of drinking. It was a little bit more than a year. Um, the truth is I was probably a functional alcoholic before that. Yeah. Uh, but as I started doing this to numb the pain, it, 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 it started to spiral out of, out of control for me. I couldn't control it at, at that point. Um, but where I really woke up to it was in Austin. We were with a group of people. It was kind of this little conference that 
um, was meeting to talk about humanitarian issues and orphan care issues, and I had been brought in to come talk about orphan care issues. And we decided we only see each other about once a year, so we were going to rent this huge house, and we were all going to hang out for the whole weekend. And so um, while we were there, I noticed that I was trying to get that good buzz feeling, you know, to keep it going, to keep the pain at bay. Um, and I was right on the edge between am I drunk or am I not drunk? Am I sober? I mean, yeah. can I appear to be undrunk? And so I started counting my drinks, like making sure that I was having a couple of drinks about an hour um, so that I wouldn't be too drunk, but that I wouldn't have that feeling of, of pain, you know. And what I noticed is, is that as I began to count those drinks, I was more present with the distraction of, you know, counting drinks, making sure that I wasn't too drunk, making sure that I appeared sober or could appear sober. I was more present with that reality than I was present with the people that I had come all this way to spend time with. Yeah. Um, and it was a really, it was a really trippy experience, uh, and and um, I just think through through that, through noticing that I was using the bottle um, to sort of interact, uh, inter, I, I guess intercept or to block presence with people, um, I kind of began to wake up a little bit. I think in that moment, and then the last night that I drank really hard. I mean, we drank until like four thirty in the morning, and it was just ridiculous and stupid and you know all the things that you'd imagine it being ridiculous <laughs> and stupid about and so yeah um one of the lines that i loved that you wrote is the bottle is not the thing the addiction is not the thing the pain is the thing mm -hmm. then you wrote the jig is up my cover up is threadbare i can hide no longer not even for myself yeah. And I, I just remember reading that and saying, yes, that is so true. Say more about that, because I think a lot of us look at our addictions as the thing. And if we just mm -hmm. get rid of the addiction, then our lives would be OK. But I think elsewhere you write, um, I suppose we're all drunk on something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That line too. So say more yeah. about that. Yeah. So um, to kind of continue with the story, which I think helps unpack that the next morning in Austin, um, I went to this to this church, and I had a really good friend who had just moved from Minnesota, actually, yep. uh, the Minneapolis area, and she had moved down, and um, she was a former alcoholic, and the first person I saw in the venue that morning was her, and for whatever reason, I just felt God saying, um, you can take care of this now, or it's about to get really bad, and uh, so I walked over to her, to Heather, and I said to Heather, not good morning, which is like what a normal person would say, right? Yeah. Um, but I just out of my mouth came, how did you know you had a drinking problem? And, you know, it's, it's all of that. You're trying to pull the words back in and, yeah. um, you know, yeah. did I just say yeah. that out loud? You know? um, Am but, I still drunk? Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah. And I, I was. There's yeah. no doubt about it. But, uh, but she just looked at me and she said, you, you know, don't you? What's really interesting is that she would later write, um, she's a writer too, she would later write, um, when you're someone who struggles with alcohol, you, you just, you know that, that, that sense. You, you can see um, people who are, are struggling too. And she would write, like, I saw right through everything that was happening. I knew that he um, was struggling and I saw the weight that he carried and I saw the pain that he carried. And as we unpacked it that day and talked about my drinking, it became really evident really quickly. And she was able to unpack all this with me. 
Um, but it became really evident really quickly that I was drinking because I didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want the responsibility of feeling. I didn't want the spiritual weight of feeling the sickness of my son. And frankly, I didn't know if my son at that time was going to make it or not. And so I, I didn't want to contemplate that potential. Yeah. Um, and so she helped me walk through that and, and recommended that I go to a therapist. And when I got back uh, to town, I went to a therapist. And, and he really helped me unpack the fact that so many of us and this was me, so many of us, um, we have such a real sense of pain in our lives. It, it's not metaphorical pain. It's not hypothetical pain. It's real life pain. And you can either deal with that and unpack that, or you can anesthetize it. Yeah. And, and uh, for me, um, I just I knew that I had to stop anesthetizing it and that I had to expose my pain and be very clear and honest with myself that this is pain induced. This is pain driven. Yeah. Yeah. There's a scene that you write about with your therapist and you're expressing uh, some of the pain, but you don't really know what's behind it yet. And he said, all right, let's let's sit with God with that. Mm. And and then you and then you, he said, "Are you afraid?" And you said, "Well, I'm not sure if I'm afraid." And then he went on, and then you said, "I don't want to kill myself. Understand that, but sometimes I wish it were all over. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like there's anything real or whole here." Mm -hmm. And that was when you wrote that he invited you to sit with that with God, mm -hmm. um, and you got taken back to a memory with a faith healer. Mm -hmm. So talk about that and where some of the pain, what was associated with the pain with that for you? Yeah, so when I was a, a kid, I had um, severe asthma. And it was the kind of asthma that is debilitating. You know, I was hospitalized a couple different times for it. Um, my parents actually tried anything they could to, you know, make my asthma go away. I think they even took me to some charismatic, not charismatic, some new age, um, like aura reader or yeah. something in, in Texas. Um, but we moved to Arkansas and sort of as a last ditch effort, there was a faith healer that had come to town and my parents said, well, let's take him to this faith healer. And um, I was very at home with God as a child. I very much felt God's tangible, palpable presence. I mean, from the earliest days, I can remember a sense of God's goodness. And, um, so I say, okay, yeah, sure, you know, you, you're raising me in the faith. This is part of the faith. Let's go take care of it or whatever. And so we go to this faith healer. And at the end of the service, my parents take me up, or my mom takes me up, and, and um, the faith healer does the whole thing. You know, if you have enough faith, you can be healed of asthma. Do you believe? And, of course, I mean, I'm a child. What do I say? Yeah, sure, I believe. Right. You know, how much more could you believe? And um, he anoints my head with oil, does the whole thing. And, um, and then he asks me, you know, do you feel any better? Do you feel different? And of course, you know, again, what do you say? It's an adult asking you, oh, sure, yeah, I feel great. This is, this, I'm sure this worked, you know, or whatever. Um, but I knew, I mean, I knew even at that moment, like this was not the answer. This did not help. Um, and I mean, it would have been within weeks that I had another asthma attack. And um, I just remember from that point, like leaving that church feeling 
um, that somehow I had done everything that was asked of me, I had all of this faith, and yet God didn't and wasn't going to show up. And I remember thinking um, that, that, that somehow I had been tricked, you know, and, and that I couldn't trust God to intervene and heal anymore. It's just, it's just not what He did. And, and so immediately in my life was planted sort of the seed of doubt, or as I call it, the cannonball of doubt, really. Um, and, and as that doubt began to weigh me down and weigh me down and weigh me down, um, I began to come up with different theologies to explain away faith and display, explain away miracles and to, to explain away God's abiding presence in the life of man today. Um, and so at too young an age, I was sort of confronted with the reality that sometimes God just doesn't show up the way we want Him to. And nobody was really able to explain that to me in a way that made any sense. And um, and so it, it it started a deep rift of pain in my relationship with God at that moment, six, seven years old. Yeah, and it sounds like it was mostly not acknowledged, really. I mean, for because yeah. you were, and then you became, now maybe I'm getting the story wrong, but you became a worship leader in a church, right? At some yeah. point. So you're yeah. leading worship, yeah. which is beautiful, but also yeah. like this pain is still there and you haven't worked that out. And yet you're leading worship, which yeah. just I'm I'm a pastor as well. I mean, I've been so for a lot of years. And I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear that those of us who are on that side of the stage can really be struggling. I mean, massively hardcore yeah, man. at the same time as we're continuing to do our job. Um, you know why you know why they're surprised? Tell me. We don't talk about it. Exactly. We don't talk about it. It's not, it's not an acceptable thing anymore to talk about, you know. And this is the thing that became so difficult in my own life. I mean, I felt like behind closed doors, I could have some really real conversations with ministers, friends. I mean, I was a lay minister, so a lay worship leader. So it wasn't my full-time job. Um, and so in that, I had a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't have freedom to share that stuff from the stage. Right. I mean, when I'm sitting here singing about the resurrection of Jesus... The man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave, and I'm thinking, did he? Yeah. Did he? Did yeah. he really? Do I believe that right now? Yeah. Is that yeah. something that's in my heart? And um, and and to have the ability to share with the congregation, like I'm singing this song, but right now I'm really struggling with the concept, and I need prayer. It's completely unacceptable, and so many ministers suffer under that. Um, <sighs> A fear of talking, you know, uh, about their real struggles. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think um, that's why books like yours uh, are so helpful in, in, in saying we just aren't going to get better until we get honest. Mm -hmm. uh, we're just not, it's, we're not going to get better until we get honest. And so, um, so again, I just appreciate it. So um, it, related to that, you wrote, uh, we're all alone together, no matter what <laughs> shiny face we might be wearing. Yeah. Which I loved because, yes, um, I don't care. And even if you're going through a season where I feel pretty good, um, there, there, and I don't want to be like this negative, uh, mm -hmm. you know, but, but there is a pain usually lurking underneath mm -hmm. that when we don't deal with it, 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 it turns into uh, more pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so 
another another so walk me through so you you have this conversation with Heather you have mm-hmm. lots of conversations with Amber you decide I have to stop and so you start to get uh you know maybe let's say you're you're 2 weeks into it um how are you feeling <laughs> how is it going and 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 then later on I'll ask you kind of what the you know, three month and then the six month, but at two weeks, how you doing? Yeah. Two weeks is brutal, man. Um, you know, at two weeks, what you realize when you stop drinking, if, if you're, if you're white knuckling, if you're working some sort of a, a slower program, I suppose it could be different, but I, um, my process was literally I was meeting with a therapist once a week. He was giving me things to contemplate and think about at my at my house with a pad and a piece of paper, uh, and I had gone cold turkey off the sauce. So uh, my process was hell. It was so difficult. Um, you know, at two weeks in, I would have felt like on a daily basis I was burning. My skin literally felt like it was on fire. Anxiety. Um, I realized that I had a deep anxiety problem that had been undealt with. I had never dealt with. Uh, and so the anxiety was coming up. Um, all of my anesthetizing agents were gone. Yep. So I was feeling the pain of, um, of the, sort of the status of my son being up in the air. I was feeling the anxiety of life. Um, I was feeling like a fraud in the church because I'd been hiding this this thing um, in my faith life for so long, and um, it was miserable, man. But at the same time, in that misery, I was, for the first time, uh, uh, free to sort of go into the darker places of my heart and really explore what was back there and what was hiding and to be honest with it. Um, And so, at the same time, it was sort of mutually freeing. It was this really weird uh, feeling. I didn't feel particularly close to God, but I did feel very, um, uh, I felt very much like I was on the road to freedom. Yeah. And you talked about, um, at one point, I don't know when it was, but you said, you wrote, recovery will be tied to routine and rise of relapse tied to noise. Mm-hmm. So talk about that. What were some of the routines that you developed that helped you? And how could you tell when that started to get noisy and you felt like, eh, you know, so talk more about that. Yeah, so my morning routine has pretty much never changed. Now, at that point, um, I was getting up probably about 5 in the morning, and I would – there was a space of about two, well, I guess it was about a year and a half to two years um, after Titus was born that I was not reading anything but Psalms. I couldn't. Um, Anything else that I would read in Scripture felt, it was too heavy, you know, it was too much. It was too much for me to bear up under. Um, And then especially when he got really ill, um, it was hard for me to read anything in the Gospels about Jesus' healing ministry. So, I just read Psalms. Um, they weren't particularly doing anything for me. Um, but so, when I got clean, I continued that pattern, but that wasn't really the pattern that sort of interrupted the noise. What, what really interrupted the noise was in the evenings I would come home and after the children would go to bed, um, Amber would give me an uninterrupted block of 
however long I needed. If it was an hour, if it was two hours, if it was three hours, whatever I needed, I could have. And I would literally just sit in one place in my living room in this big blue overstuffed chair. And I would just empty my mind as best I could um, of the thoughts of the day and then ask, you know, what is it back there that's causing me pain? And I would just keep going back and back and back and back. Um, and what I noticed is when I was very intentional with that process um, and thinking about those things and trying to pray through those things the best I could, um, I was able to make a conscious decision you know, not to drink. And if that routine got interrupted and if, you know, the Facebook started dinging or Twitter started dinging or the, the you know, the daily needs of, you know, the needs of the day started interrupting um, or emails from clients or whatever it would be, what I noticed is that the fire would kind of rise back up and I would mm. really want to drink. And um, so I think this is the way it is with anything in life, you know, when 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 we're just inundated with noise um, and distracted from doing the internal work and allowing the Holy Spirit to do the internal work, I think what ends up happening um, is that we just reach for the thing that sort of dumbs down the noise the best we know how. For me, that was alcohol. For some people, that's social media. For some people, that's shopping or sex or porn or what, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, when we're just going, 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 and we're not present with our pain and present with who we are and present with our joy, um, then th th that noise uh, leads us to, to bad choices, I think, a, a lot of times. I totally agree. Uh, I think that's really profound. And I think it's really, it's, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? Because sometimes we can use all of those things to, to seemingly quiet the noise. Like, like I can use email, Twitter, Facebook to try mm -hmm. to numb whatever it is that I don't want to feel because it's distracting. Yeah. It's so I think, but what you're saying is that, man, that, that, that leads to that compulsive need to numb even more. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it is, it does become a vicious, uh, a vicious cycle. So, um, okay, another quote that I loved, Seth. Effective dependency makes us stronger as individuals. Mm. Say more mm. about that. I love that line. So good. Yeah, I think what's really it's really interesting that we are such an independent, you know, group of people. Where you know, rugged individualism is celebrated. Independence is celebrated. We have an entire holiday around um, independence. You know, we we fought for and obtained independence. Um, and actually, I think independence uh, in and of itself is not a goal worthy of celebration, right? Um, one of the things that, that I think we find in our everyday life is that um, the more independent we are, the more we're disconnected from people, the more we're disconnected from God, the more we become dependent on man-made things. The more we become dependent on success or money or sex or uh, alcohol or whatever it is, the, the, the less connected we are to the community of faith and to the faith itself, um, 
the more disconnected we are, if that makes sense. And so, um, in the Ignatian tradition, it would be explained um, as disordered attachments or disordered affections, right? Um, so, instead of having our affection properly placed on God, we have our affections misplaced and, um, you know, on alcohol or whatever the thing may be, right? So, for me, I think in, in coming clean and me sort of getting rid of and working through and walking through addiction, um, it was really the process of walking through uh, um, becoming less dependent on one thing to cure the pain, i.e. alcohol, and actually properly placing that dependence back where it was supposed to be um, on God and on my community of faith. So, again, to use sort of Ignatian terms, reordering my affections. Yeah. So, reordering my affections toward God instead of towards the other things that, that would offer me temporal pain relief, reorder my affections on the things of God, on the community of God, and on what He might want to do in my life. Yeah. So, let's fast forward. Uh, so, now let's say you're at 90 days or even 120 days. Where have you, at that point, where do you start feeling some freedom? Uh, where is it still a struggle? And what uh, hope can you give toward someone who might be listening to this and might be going, oh my gosh, uh, I'm drunk on whatever it is, alcohol, sex, uh, shopping, whatever it mm. is. Uh, walk through that journey a little bit so that people... Um, uh, know, know that there is some hope coming. Yeah. So, there's some pretty good research on this, actually, and it talks about this window between 90 and 120 days. Um, and it's habit-forming type research. You know, you do something for about 90 days. Um, it becomes a pretty solid habit. At that point, it, it just becomes a process of walking into the habit. And so many of us um, who have addictions don't ever make it to that 90-day point. Um, but here's what my progression looked like, and, and I wouldn't ever want to lay this right. on someone else, but my progression looked like this. At about uh, three weeks, um, my mind cleared. Mm -hmm. It was almost like I felt a literal fog lifting, and I could kind of see clearly for the first time. In fact, I was playing guitar when it happened, and I remember making connections on the fretboard that I was never able to make, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden thinking, oh, Wow, everything is more clear, you know. Um, so that was about 18, you know, to 21, 22 days. Um, between then and 90 days, it was a very slow slog of just one day at a time, right? Just today I'm going to make it. I don't know about tomorrow, but today I'm going to make it. Um, between 90 and 120, I feel like the habits were really well formed. My community was aware of where I was what was going on. Uh, my church family was aware, and so I had some built-in accountability structures by that time. Um, my therapist continued to talk to me in that time period, and um, I felt like I was getting the tools to really deal with the things I needed to deal with, and it was exciting. Yeah. You know, my mind is cleared. I don't hurt as much. I'm getting the tools. So that 90 to 120, that was a really beautiful sort of time. But here's what's ha what happens. Um, from one tw days 120 to day 365, um, I was on autopilot. Hmm. I felt great, right? 
Um, I still battled alcohol. I still, you know, if I were at a restaurant and there was a bar over my uh, shoulder, I hear every order, yeah, you know, yeah. and think, oh man, I wish I could drink that or whatever the case may be. But then I had some very particular inner practices and some very particularly tangible spiritual practices I was doing um, that would help. Um, but what happened to me around the one-year mark is um, I had to go to this retreat, this spiritual retreat, and it was days after I celebrated a year uh, of sobriety. And um, I noticed that after I passed that one-year mark of sobriety, I just didn't have any more goals. Hmm. Like I, I had beat the big goal, you know, one year, um, and what was left, and I started really freaking out, like really freaking out, um, to the point where I got pretty convinced that I was just going to burn it all down and start back over at day one, because yeah. then I would have another goal, right? right. It's, so, it's so irrational, but don't ever try to talk to an addict about rationality, because <laughs> uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Yeah. But... Um, so I went to this um, to this retreat, and a good friend of mine named Wynn Collier was there. He's a pastor out on the East Coast, and um, and he said, you know, so long as you continue to live out of your identity as being an addict, you're never going to get better. You're always going to fight this desire to want to like burn it down and start over at day one. And um, and he said, you know, something that was not new. Numerous people have said it. Um, Brennan said it. I read it first from Brennan, but I've yep. heard it a hundred times from there, which is uh, you need to live out of uh, your identity, your core identity of being, of being the beloved of Christ. And for whatever reason, when Wynn said it, it stuck. Mm. And I thought, oh, yeah, I don't have to live out of shame or guilt that I was you know, drunk for the better part of a year and a half. I, it's not part of my identity. My core identity is that Christ has lived and died for me. Um, and that now that he lives in me and he is my hope, you know. Uh, and from that point on, man, I don't know what happened, but there has just been a shift. Um, and it's not saying I don't still want to drink every now and then. Um, but it's not saying that I use the same language that I used to use. I don't really go around talking about addiction anymore. I talk about sobriety. Yeah. There's a big difference between addiction and sobriety, mm, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't really talk about alcoholism. Um, and maybe that, maybe some people don't like that, you know? Um, but for me, the idea is to live into the sobriety of knowing the spirit better every day. You know, and to live into the sobriety of being the beloved of Christ. And if I can do that, I can kind of do anything, wow. you know? So I love that. What is the difference between addiction and sobriety? Could you just say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Because I think light bulbs are going off in some people's minds, perhaps. What do you, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, so Scripture talks over and over again about sobriety, being sober in mind and being sober in spirit. It doesn't ever talk about alcoholism. Right. It talks about being drunk, sure, whatever. Right. But, um, but, and so I think there is a mindset that lives out of this, this idea of once I'm an addict, I'm always an addict. And addiction is always somewhere 
you know, right back in the back of your mind, and it always comes forward. And every time you go into a bar and you see somebody pouring a whiskey, you think, "Oh, I'm an addict. If I even smell that, I'm going off." Yeah, yeah. So you're always living in this constant state of fear and inner turmoil. And even if you're able to overcome the fear and the inner turmoil, as many are, um, the I, the identity of being an addict can so um, uh, just just be so thick in you that you forget that. You're really not that different than anyone else, you know. Um, you're not that different from the guy next door who isn't "quote unquote" an addict. Um, but when you live into the idea of sobriety instead of out of the fear of addiction, or instead of out of the identity of addiction, when you live into um, the mindset of inner sobriety, what you're really saying is, um, "I'm trying to live my life in such a way that nothing disrupts my communication with God." What's happening inside of me is so quiet and so still, and there's nothing that can make that interior space so noisy that it distracts me from connection with the Spirit. And that's the way I want to live. I want to live sober-minded, sober-spirited, um, so that when the Spirit speaks, I hear Him, and I listen, and I walk. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I think that is that is a vision to live into, no matter what it is that we're drunk on, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is a vision to live in. That is, I, lo I love that. What does it mean to be sober so that I can hear the Spirit of God leading me to where I need to go? I love mm -hmm. that. I love that. All right, last question, Seth. Uh, I think for anyone who deals with addiction and starts to walk towards sobriety, forgiveness is something we're going to have to stumble upon, right? Yeah. And so, And not stumble upon, or we're going to have to choose. Yeah. So uh, you write this quote from Buddy Wakefield, forgiveness is realizing <laughs> that, or no, uh, forgiveness is releasing all hope for a better past. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a great definition of forgiveness. It's not saying that what happened doesn't matter. It's not saying that I'm going to be best friends with someone that hurt me, but it is saying um, I'm going to stop hoping that the past could, could change. Say yeah. more about that. Yeah, first of all, I want to say that if you haven't listened to much Buddy Wakefield, you need to remedy that because he's yeah. awesome. Okay, uh, Buddy Wakefield, baby. Um, yeah, if you have show notes, you should put that in the show I notes. Will. But, I will. Um, yeah, for me, I think... Um, I want to be specific about the wording I choose because I, I even had a, a situation arise a couple days ago where I was, my interior space was very disrupted by anger at a particular individual, right? So I'm not even now talking about when I was, you know, drunk. I'm talking about yesterday, yeah. two days ago, three days ago, right? Yeah. Um, and when that happened, I thought, What's driving his desire to hurt me? Mm. What's behind that? And another guy's story. And as I go back through his story, I think, oh, well, it's very clear. It's very clear what motivates him. And it's very clear how his motivations and my motivations got crossways. Uh, he wasn't trying to hurt me. It wasn't intentional. Yeah. He didn't set out to do what he did. It just kind of happened because he was operating out of his... Um, his woundings and his identity. And so he was doing the best he knew how. I need to just let that go. 
right? This is a lesson that I learn and that I continue to learn. I have not gotten it down, man. Yesterday was a victory. Tomorrow I'll totally screw up and get mad and be like, I want to get in a fist fight or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but this was, this was a very specific lesson that I learned in the process of becoming, um, of living into sobriety. And I, I looked back at particularly that faith healer, Mm -hmm. right? He was trained to believe a certain way about the way God moves. Yep. And, and you know what? Maybe he saw it happen a lot. Maybe he saw God heal people a lot, you know? Um, or maybe he was in it for the money. Uh, who knows, man? I don't know his motivations. But what I know is, is that uh, he, he had a very particular worldview and his very particular worldview rubbed up against my very brittle childlike faith. And um, looking back on that 30 some odd years, I can say, man, he was just doing the best he knew how. And you know what? My parents brought me there. He was just trying to do what my mom wanted him to do. Yeah. And you know what? My mom was scared to death about my asthma. Yeah. She was just trying to do the best that she knew how to do. Yeah. And, and what parent wouldn't try anything for their child, right? Yeah. And so as I look back at all these people in my life and I say, oh, they wounded me, they wounded me, they wounded me, if I'm really objective about it, I can just say, you know, most of these people were just doing the best they knew how. And, and so I release them from that. I can't change the past. Yeah. I can't change what they did. I can't change their motivations. I can't change anything um, except for I can forgive them. And that's what Jesus did. You know, I think one of my favorite um, one of my favorite scenes in Scripture is when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's looking at these these Roman guards who, again, came from their very particular past, their very particular backgrounds, contexts. They were just doing what they told what they were told, um, and they murdered God. Like they were just doing what they were told. And Jesus looks at them, and he could have said, Father, forgive them of their sins. Like, he says that all throughout Scripture. Yeah. You know, your sins are forgiven. Um, he didn't say that. What he says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the way I read that is, Father, forgive them. They're just doing the best they know how. Yeah. You know, they're human. They're doing the best they know how. And if Jesus uh, can love that way, and if we're called to walk into the sobriety that Jesus embodied, um, then there's really nothing for us to do except to say, we forgive those people who've wounded us in the past. They were just doing the best they knew how. Yeah. As I hear you say that too, it occurs to me that that's, we have to treat ourselves that way too. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, when we look in the past and maybe there's horrendous mistakes Maybe there's things that, oh, and we just beat ourselves up and we feel so much shame. I think there's a sense in which we have to look at ourselves and say, oh my gosh, I was just really doing the best I knew how. Mm-hmm. Doesn't excuse it if I hurt people, but um, but if I'm going to move on, I have to stop clubbing myself over the head with, yeah. you know, with a club of shame. Yeah. And, you know, I tell people, too, all the time, it's really important that you live this ethos out with others around you. Like, it's really important um, with my coworkers that I live this out, that if they harm me or hurt me, that I forgive them, as hard as it may be. And the reason is because there's one thing that is certain, and that is if you know me long enough, I will hurt you. Yes, yes. 
I don't want to. Yeah. But it's a fact of life. It's going to happen, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I need your forgiveness. Yeah. You know, and if I'm going to uh, need your forgiveness, then I better be willing to extend it to you too. Well, thanks, Seth. Uh, unbelievable time. Thank you so much. I can't wait for the, the listeners to hear this. Uh, I will include Buddy Wakefield on the show notes. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'll also include a link to your book, Coming Clean. Thanks. And, I'll, and I'm going to add your wife, Amber's book, uh, Wild in the Hollow, too, because it's yeah. just amazing. It's just she's a great writer, too. And perhaps I'll have her on uh, on the podcast as well yeah. sometime in the future. Yeah. And to all the Minneapolis friends, we are dreaming and scheming. Nothing's settled yet, but to, to get Seth out to Minneapolis for an event around sobriety and to preach at Genesis. So I'd love it. Yeah, stay tuned for that, Seth. We will continue to nail that down. And uh, I just I thank you so much for your time, my friend. And uh, thanks, man. Can't wait to be face to face in the summertime. It'll be great. Yeah, be yeah. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Grace and peace, everybody. Thanks for listening.